Hi, this is Wilson from Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. After the pandemic, it's been easy to do Chipotle Church, where we get to choose how much church we want every week. Maybe I'll stay home this Sunday. I feel like opening my Bible today, but not tomorrow. I'll go to small group and not Sundays. Our City Monk series challenges this construct of church and pushes us to reorder our life around Jesus and the Sabbath. It's a call to live in contrast to a city that is busy and burnt out. Instead, we live unhurried lives, wrapping our daily and weekly schedule around being with Jesus. I hope you get a chance to check out our church on Sunday in Fullerton, California at 10 a.m. I hope you enjoy the series. Well, good morning, Renew Church. How are you this morning? Yeah, good, good. It's, it's very cozy today. I'm pretty excited uh, that we can be together uh, looking into God's Word. Uh, let's do this. Um, as we look at the questions, and by the way, if you're visiting here for the first time, uh, we want you to have an experience of interaction with one another. And so one of the cultural things that we do is we break up into the groups around you and we actually go through a question. Um, a lot of times it's a, it's a fun question or it's an easy question. Uh, this is the question that we have for you today. And uh, if we could put it up. Um, what are you passionate about? Okay. What are you passionate about? And how do you communicate it with other people? Do we have it up? No? Okay. All right. It'll be up in a second. What are you passionate about? Uh, maybe I can go into detail a little bit. Some of you are foodies. Some of you enjoy a particular restaurant or a particular type of food. Maybe it's a band, right? Maybe it's a music band that you really like. Uh, maybe it's a new exercise that you're getting involved in. Or maybe it's a sport, sport team. Maybe it's a new diet that you're trying. And you're like, oh, this is an awesome diet, which I can't believe would be anything that anybody would say, but it's an awesome diet, you know, we're doing this. Maybe it's a TV show or a movie or a hobby. Whatever it is, uh, okay, good. Recount a time when you shared something you are passionate about with someone. What did you say? What happened? Uh, what did you learn from it? Can we do that? So let's break up into uh, groups of maybe, you know, three, four, five, and uh, let's go ahead and let's share with one another. Can we do that? It's always good to share about what we're most passionate about, and I'm sure you have some amazing stories. I wish I could hear all of them and just kind of hear what, uh, what you were talking about. A lot of laughter, right? So I'm sure a lot of it was funny, a lot of it was engaging. Um, you know, I want to share with you that uh, we have been on this series uh, called City Monks, and it has been personally a tremendous, tremendous encouragement to me. Because the idea of City Monks is really what Renew Church wants to be. We want to be a church that really focuses on the three areas uh, that I believe are most important. The idea of authenticity in our relationship with the Lord and being very comfortable with who we really are. You know, in light of how God has made us, how God is using and working in us, uh, to be very, very much uh, open and uh, open and responsive to the Lord, to be a man and woman after God's own heart. And then we talked about the idea of community, right? We went from city, or we went from, excuse me, monk to monastery, and how important it is to be with other uh, men and women who also want on a, 
an authentic relationship with the Lord so that we can support one another, encourage one another, and so that we can also grow uh, as, as we minister to one another uh, within the church, within the body of Christ. Uh, but now what we're going to do, uh, and I get the privilege of kind of moving us to the, to the final phase of uh, what's important, and that is the city. The idea that we have a calling, we have a mission uh, to go out and to be Christ's ambassadors uh, to the city that we belong to. And also outreaching not only to this city, but also other cities and even to the world. And so I get a chance to really reset and refocus uh, my attention on being a monk, living correctly in the monastery, and now having that mission and purpose in the city. And so I hope that you have that same desire as well. You know, if anything, a reset or a refocus is to look at what's most important and to allow the peripheral things to kind of melt away and to really focus our attention on what's really important, what we should be most passionate about. And as Christians, I, I believe what we need to be most passionate about is Jesus Christ and his good news. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about um, evangelism. Now that's a really big word, right? It's a theological word, evangelism. What does it mean? Well, evangelism comes from the Greek word that means good news. And that's really what it is. Evangelism is the sharing of the good news concerning Jesus. If we have that right up here. Uh, there's been a crowdfunded... Uh, uh, I think television or movie series uh, on YouTube called The Chosen. And I don't know, how many of you have seen this already? Would you raise your hand? Yeah? Okay, great. It, it's just been a tremendous, I, I've watched uh, a few episodes of this. It's been pretty amazing. But what is evangelism? It is actually the good news about the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And so when we go out and when we evangelize, we share about Jesus' birth. Christmas isn't just about Santa Claus and presents. It really is about the incarnation, that Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time. He took on flesh and blood, and he became uh, like us. The prophets foretold about it, and he came, and there was a purpose, that he was born on this earth, historically born, and he lived a life. But not only any life, he lived a perfect life. He lived a life of total obedience to the Father. That Jesus was without sin. He wasn't affected by the fall. And so he lived a life that was absolutely pleasing to God. And he took that life, and this is really the apex of the gospel. He took that life and he sacrificed it for fallen human beings. He died for us on a cross. And his death was the sacrifice that was for the satisfaction of sins and for um, for the forgiveness of sin as well. And we know that. But not only that, but Easter, right? It was just, uh, it was just a little bit ago that we, um, that we looked at Jesus' burial. And we looked at his resurrection. That Jesus, by his resurrection, proved that he had the power to forgive sin. To heal humanity by triumphing over sin, death, and hell. And that's what we celebrated not too long ago, right? But not only that, Jesus also, after he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. The Bible says he sits at the right hand of God, that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 
It is invisible now, but one day it will come to fruition in all its great, great grandeur. But not only that, the Bible says that as he reigns and, and as he rules, he will one day come back. And we know that he will come back for us and restore all things to how God originally attended, intended that to be. How glorious, how glorious that's going to be. That is the gospel. And that is the gospel in its entirety wrapped around the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem lost humanity. You know, uh, midterms are just around the corner if you're politically uh, minded at all. And you know that senators and congressmen and all kinds of politicians, they're going to start uh, running ads on TV talking about how they're going to promise amazing things. That they're going to promise all kinds of uh, great things because of uh, what they're going to do in their senatorial run and in their uh, congressional run. And, and we're going to hear all kinds of promises. But if you've been around long enough and you've lived, some of that we take with a grain of salt, don't we? Some of that, I mean, we, we think to ourselves, well, how much are things going to change? Or is that person really going to do what they promised? Or can they really, uh, and their system and their program, uh, change the expectations of what's around us? And we get a little bit cynical. And rightly so, because honestly, human beings in power can only do so much. They can promise the world, but they can't promise perfection. Can I share with you that the gospel gives us the fact that Jesus can change the world. Amen? That Jesus, our Lord and Savior, can make America and the world great. That it can, that he can build back better to something that was lost in the fall. And so we believe that because he is not an earthly candidate. He is a heavenly candidate. He is a divine one. And so we want to look at that today. What does it mean to, to look at Jesus as our hope, our ultimate hope and blessing? You know, as a boy, um, before sleeping, uh, I had this little Walkman, this little cassette Walkman. And every night before I went to bed, I would listen to the Bible on cassette tape, okay? And it was always dramatic, you know, with all kinds of sound effects and different uh, uh, people talking. And it was very dramatized. And I would listen to it uh, all the time, from Genesis to Revelation. I would listen to the Bible. But my favorite one before going to bed was the book of Acts. The book of Acts was truly my favorite. I would rewind it and listen to it over and over and over again late at night. And my parents let me because it's the Bible. What are they going to do, right? So I would listen to it all the time. Well, Acts is the book of evangelism. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. It's the acts of God's people empowered to evangelize the world. You see, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of every person who will commit to it. And the book of Acts shows us tremendous, miraculous transformation. Countless lives changed, and it was my favorite thing to listen to. My exhortation this morning is to refocus ourselves on the area of evangelism. To reset our minds and hearts on this area of evangelism. So we're going to study Acts chapter 16. If you uh, want to take your uh, devices and turn there, Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at the pattern and practice of the early church in the area of sharing the good news. And so we're going to examine four principles that we see from the text on how to evangelize to our friends, our family, 
our community with the good news about Jesus the Messiah. How do we evangelize? So if you're taking notes, this is going to be pretty easy. I have four points. The first point is we need to reproduce reproducing Christians. Let me say that again. In order to follow the biblical mandate for us, we need to reproduce reproducing Christians. Now, in college, I had a roommate. We were both called to ministry, and so we were both in Bible college preparing uh, for ministry. His name was Shane, and I love that brother. He was one of my best friends. Um, to this day, I still you know, try to keep in touch with him. He, he's a wonderful guy. And we were roommates in college, and we love to go and just kind of share the gospel. We call it cold turkey evangelism, right? Where we take our four spiritual laws, we would go into an area, and we would just share. Shane was six foot two, 220 pounds, okay? Uh, big guy. I'm, I'm six foot tall. I'm pretty manly looking, but he was a lot bigger than me, okay? And so this guy was huge. He was a, a, a Michigan uh, um, he was a Michigan a wrestler. Uh, he won state, and so he was just a tremendous, tremendous specimen uh, physically. And I remember we would go out uh, to a certain neighborhood, and I recall a certain neighborhood we went. We kind of broke up and, and went to different places. I took my four spiritual laws, and as I was coming back, I, I think it was a couple hours you know, into uh, kind of sharing the gospel, I came back, and I saw Shane talking to who I think was like a junior high kid, maybe a high school kid, really small, and he was pinned up against a chain link fence, okay? And he looked scared. There was fear in his eyes. As Shane was in this wrestling stance with his four spiritual laws, and he was just talking to the kid, right? And so I remember him talking, and I was just amused. I was like, Shane couldn't see me, but, you know, I was watching, and he was talking to him, and he was very excitable. He's just that way, his personality. And the kid um, said this, because uh, he said it really loud, uh, he said, I don't want to join. I don't want to join, right? And Shane kept talking to him. I don't know what he was saying, but I was just watching for a while, right? And so after he was done, uh, he turned around, and the boy ran off. He just ran, okay? Turned around. He saw me, had this gleam in his eye, had this smile on his face, and he walked up, and he said, you wouldn't believe it. Dave, I brought this guy to Jesus Christ. I led this kid to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember he said that to me, all happy and everything, and I just laughed, okay? And I said, you didn't lead that kid to Jesus Christ. You actually intimidated that guy for Jesus Christ, right? Well, he didn't like that, and uh, Shane is a wrestler, so every argument we ever had ended up him wrestling me and hurting me, and so we went back home, and he abused me, right? He carpet burns and all kinds of pain, but anyway... Um, the one thing he said when I said, you intimidated that guy for Jesus, I remember his response. He said, my job is just to get the message out there. My job is just to get the message out there, Dave. That, that's really what I'm supposed to do. And you know, when you think about it, that's modern evangelism, isn't it? It's reduced to this impromptu declaration of sharing facts, kind of the facts that I shared with you in the intro to this sermon, right? This idea of hey, if I declare all these facts that I am evangelizing, and if I can get the gospel message out there, then my work is done. But you know, the biblical model for evangelism is so different from just spouting an impromptu declaration. The biblical idea of evangelism demands discipleship. You know, when Jesus called his disciples and he gave them the Great Commission, the model of evangelism, 
he, he tells them in verse 19 to go and make disciples. He never said just go and declare the truth about me. Go and tell people the good news. He actually says go and make disciples. It's not just a declaration. So our job as Jesus evangelists is to go and is to win people to Jesus through the gospel. But not only are we to do that, we're to build those people up in the truth of the gospel. And we are to teach and train them to do the same. Now, when you think about that, that just sounds like a tall order. It's easier to just share facts than to actually get into the life of somebody. It requires more time. It requires more sacrifice. But the biblical model of evangelism, just like in the early church, if we do it, will turn the world upside down. Because that's what God has called us to do. Now here in Acts chapter 16, it's our text this morning, Paul is on his second missionary journey. Okay? Now in the first missionary journey of Paul, he traveled to Lystra, Icon Iconium, and Derbe, uh, Greek cities, and he spends time evangelizing that region with the gospel. But now, in the second missionary journey, he revisits that same area. And I want you to look what he says in verse 1. Let's look at it. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Verse 2, the believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. I want you to see this. Paul comes back uh, in his second missionary journey to the same area to pick up a 17-year-old disciple named Timothy, to go with him on his second missionary journey. Now, we may misunderstand this, so I, I, want, I want to be very clear. We may misunderstand that because we know both Paul and Timothy in the Bible, that they had a, and that they had a close relationship with each other, and Paul actually calls him a son in the faith, that Paul was the one who brought Timothy to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's easy to kind of assume that. But the truth was, Paul didn't know Timothy at all when we read this particular text. At this time, in the reading of Acts chapter 16, Paul doesn't know Timothy. Because in verse 2 it says, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. You see, Paul didn't know about him. He was picking up Timothy for the ministry based on references, based on the reports of trusted brothers and sisters that he knew. Paul didn't know him. Now in 2 Timothy, can we put the slide up, verse one through five, I want you to see this really interesting uh, thing. This is when uh, Paul and Timothy have been together for a long time. Timothy's a lot older. This is what he says. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, and am persuaded lives in you also. What was Paul, what can we surmise from this? Well, Paul didn't know Timothy at all, and this is really important, because this tells us that it was Paul who converted Lois and Eunice and then trained them in the faith in that first missionary journey. He was able to convert both of them and disciple Lois and Eunice. And so Lois and Eunice then in turn were trained to convert and to disciple Timothy in the faith. So that when Paul came back on his second missionary journey, he was able to receive second generation fruit from first-generation converts. He didn't have to lead Timothy to Jesus. He led Lois and Eunice to Jesus and trained them to do the same. 
And so he was able to pick up a tremendous asset to the missionary work because of what Lois and Eunice had done through his discipleship. What am I saying? That this is why it's so important to reproduce reproducing Christians. Because discipleship breeds exponential growth, right? It may be hard work. It may require a lot of sacrifice. But discipleship is rewarding because we're not simply adding to the church. We are multiplying the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? That's so powerful to understand. If I share the gospel with you, I'm adding somebody to the kingdom if you receive it, right? But what's greater is if I share the gospel with you and I disciple you to in turn do the same thing. That means when I am doing the work of ministry and evangelism and you are doing the work of ministry and evangelism, all your disciples are doing the same thing, we are multiplying the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Evangelism in our neighborhoods and communities would look a whole lot different if all of us were obedient to Jesus' model of making disciples. It would turn the world upside down. The second point we want to look at is having an in them to win them attitude. Have an in them to win them attitude. Let's look in verse 1. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Verse 3, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised Timothy because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting. Paul has Timothy circumcised before they go on this uh, missionary journey. Now, why does he do this? Because if you know scripture, you know Paul had railed against the false teachers, the Judaizers, who taught that circumcision was necessary for a Christian in order to be saved. And Paul's response was always that this was wrong. He defended the idea that Gentiles and Jews didn't need to be circumcised in order to have salvation. As a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Galatians, he's so, so frustrated with the Galatians who have turned from uh, the true gospel and now they're, uh, they're, they're adding to it by uh, saying that you have to be circumcised. And he says in the book of Galatians, if you're so intent on circumcising, right, then I wish you'd just cut it all off, you know, because, you know, and that's a very, very powerful, but he's frustrated because he doesn't want people to be astray because of this idea of circumcision. Well, then why would Paul approve of circumcision here? And this is important. If you're taking notes, write this down. This was a cultural reason not a theological reason. The reason why Paul was having Timothy circumcised was because of a cultural reason, not a theological one. Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek. In the Jewish mind, no circumcision meant that you rejected being ethnically Jewish, that you were embracing a Gentile lifestyle. And so culturally, you would have been outside of the Jewish community had you not been circumcised. Paul recognized all that Timothy needed to do to gain acceptance with the Jews was to be circumcised in order for him to share his faith freely. And so Timothy's circumcision was to erase all the cultural barriers that could have been there. And this was always Paul's attitude. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's, he says this, and this is his credo. Though I am free and belong to no man, 
I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. Paul's attitude was always a in them to win them mentality. We call this attitude incarnational evangelism because Jesus was the one who set that example for us. He's the preeminent example. He became a human being in order to win human beings. He took on flesh and blood in order to come and save us. Imagine the sovereign, immutable God of the universe came to this earth physically, taking on flesh and blood in order to redeem us from our state of sin and eternal death. We call this incarnational evangelism. Jesus was the ultimate example. Paul was following Jesus. And the Bible says that we as followers of Christ must follow this example as well. It's the ultimate uh, way in order to reach people for Jesus Christ. Now, I want, you, I want to add to this uh, something that's not found in the text, but I think it's going to be really important to us. This is interesting that elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul has two major disciples, Timothy and Titus. They both become pastors of the church. They become amazing, amazing servants of the Lord. Paul trained both of them. Now, Paul accepts Timothy's circumcision, but do you know elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul rejects Titus's circumcision, okay? So both Timothy and Titus were his disciples, yet Paul has Timothy circumcised, but Titus was not allowed to be circumcised. Now, you might say, why is that? That sounds so inconsistent. Because in Titus's case, this was a theological reason, not a cultural one. Okay? In Timothy's case, it's a cultural one, not a theological one. But in Titus's, this was purely a theological reason. Because, listen to this, Titus' circumcision undermined the gospel. Titus was a full Gentile. And so there was no cultural reason for him to get circumcised. But these false prophets, these Judaizers, demanded his circumcision for salvation. And so Paul understood that Titus's circumcision would be a rejection of salvation by grace through faith without any human works added. That the essence of the gospel is grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Titus didn't need to be circumcised. John MacArthur says it this way. I, I, th I think this is excellent. He says, to circumcise a Gentile like Titus would have been to impose legalism where the gospel would be at stake. But to circumcise a Jew like Timothy, who was already a Jew, would have uh, allowed him the cultural freedom to be effective to the Jewish people. Now, why am I sharing with you all this historical stuff? Because here's the point. We should endeavor to be all things to all people. We should endeavor to have it in them to win them mentality as long as it doesn't undermine the gospel. You know, I've had guys that uh, came uh, to faith in the Lord. They were involved in, in frats. And they honestly, in the beginning, they wanted to reach their friends. And so they'd say, I want to get drunk with my friends in order to reach them with the gospel. I want to get high with my friends so that they see that, you know, I'm like them and I can reach them with the gospel, right? There have been people who said, I want to watch porn with my friends. I want to go to strip clubs with my friends so that I can be in them to win them. But can I share with you, those are sins that undermine the gospel. 
Those aren't legitimate things. We have to be all things to all people as long as it doesn't uh, undermine. You know, um, there was a missionary, a young missionary uh, uh, in seminary, and I recall her sharing with me, and she's just such a wonderful Christian. She's an amazing missionary. But she shared with me, and this was when she was younger, she said, I want to reach the Muslim people. And so I've decided to go to a mosque and worship. Not, not just observe, but actually worship with them. And so when they, you know, pray to Allah, I'm going to pray to Jesus secretly. And in that way, I'm going to gain, uh, uh, gain access to them. I'm going to be in them to win them, right? That's the idea. And I had to tell her, no, that actually undermines the gospel. For you to go and worship, they're not going to know what you're doing, Right? What you're doing is, it's a syncretistic kind of idea. And we want to kind of stay away from that. When we share the gospel, it has to be uh, an incarnational evangelism that doesn't undermine what we're trying to do. Amen? Okay, the third reason, or the third thing we want to look at is preaching God's grace in word and deed. Okay? Preaching God's grace in word and deed. Let me ask you this question. What comes to mind when you think of the word preacher, or maybe who comes to mind, right? Maybe it's Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, because he is somebody that you think of as preaching and evangelizing. Maybe you think of Wilson Wang, right? Because he's full-time, he's our pastor, and he preaches on a regular basis. Uh, but can I share with you, when we look in Scripture, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus commands all his disciples, and this is everyone, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Isn't that interesting? We have in our minds Billy Graham, Wilson Wang, you know, all these uh, preachers and, and teachers that are full-time ministers. But here the Bible tells us that we are all to go out. In the book of Acts, we see that the whole church goes out to preach the gospel. The proclamation of the death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus the Messiah. And so biblically speaking... Preaching refers to an activity done by all of God's people. It's an activity done by apostles like Paul and Peter, but also deacons like Philip and Stephen, but also lay people like Aquila and Priscilla. In Acts chapter 8 verse 4, all of them who were scattered preached the word of God wherever they went. You see, preaching is something that is done by all of God's people. Not only that, but biblically speaking, preaching refers to an action done outside the church rather than inside the church. Now, that might be something, you know, very novel to you, but biblically speaking, it's true. Preaching, the kerygma or the gospel, was done in the marketplace. It was done in your sphere of influence. Words that were used for activities done within the church were admonishing, exhorting, encouraging, teaching, so that the early church's method of evangelism was that everyone went out into the marketplace to share the gospel. And then when they brought new converts into the church, the church would, they would receive teaching and admonishing and exhorting and training. And then they would all go out. These people who were trained as well would go out into the marketplace again to evangelize. This was the first century cycle of evangelism. And what a difference it is to our modern practice. Our modern method of evangelism is let the professionals let the full-time workers, the pastor and the evangelist, let them preach. Let the full-time person focus on evangelism. But imagine if we were to follow the biblical model that Jesus commanded and commissioned us to do. 
that all of us were preachers who would go into the marketplace of this world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look in verse 4. It says, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Now, you might ask, what what were these decisions about? Well, a chapter earlier, in chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, this was an ecumenical council, was called to answer the question of the essence of the gospel. What is the essence of the gospel that both Jews and Gentile Christians could affirm? So let me give you some background. So when Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven, his disciples went throughout Jerusalem and Judea and even to other places, and they shared with other Jews, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Everything that the prophets predicted came true. He's the Messiah. Believe on him. And so there were so many Jews who came to Jesus, so many Jews in the early church in the early days that were converted to Christianity. But did you know Paul was called not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so Paul would go out with Barnabas and Silas. He'd go out with Luke. And they would go to places in their missionary journeys, and they would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Gentiles were coming to Jesus. So now you had Jews and Gentiles who had the question, who had this question, right, culturally we're different, what makes us, uh, what makes us, um, um, what is the commonality with us? What is the thing that we can both affirm to? And so in chapter 15 and verse 11, this council of Jerusalem came to this. He said, we believe it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as the Gentiles are. So the essence or the core of the gospel is salvation by grace. That's something that everyone uh, sees as, 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 as primary. The preaching the grace of Jesus, and here's what they did in their words and in their actions. <clears throat> There's a book I've touted, if we could put it up. There's a book I've touted many times. It's called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And this man is not a Christian. He's a sociologist, he's a psychologist, but he's a non-Christian. He wrote a book about how an obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant force in the world. And so he didn't look at it spiritually. Of course, the Holy Spirit was doing work, and he was doing amazing things. He looked at it from a non-Christian perspective, and this is what he says, and I think this is beautiful. He said, the reason why this transformation occurred, this miracle happened, was because of Christians' unbelievable grace poured out into the Roman Empire. It was the unbelievable grace that Christians expressed in the Roman Empire. So in that time, right, if you had too many girls uh, that were born to you and you didn't want that many girls, you could throw girls out in the street to die. And it would be okay uh, in some parts of the empire. And so what Christians literally did was they would pick up those unwanted babies and start orphanages and through the grace that was expressed through Jesus they would express it to those orphans and they would take care of them now lepers were in the periphery of society they were put in these colonies they were left to just die of their diseases and to live uncomfortable lives Christians this book talks about would go into those leper colonies 
and they would take care of the lepers. They knew full well it was a communicable disease, that they could die from it, but they would go and they would actually contract leprosy in order to incarnate Jesus' love and grace to them. You know, in times of great pandemics, especially in Rome, when a pandemic occurred, people would leave the city and they would go into the countryside. And many times, their infirmed parents or their grandparents or whoever couldn't go out, they would just leave them there to die. And they would leave so that they could save themselves and survive. Christians, healthy Christians, would stay in the cities and would stay and they would take care of these neglected or, or, or abandoned people and they would nurse them and thank God for herd immunity, right? They were okay. And so what happened when these people came back and they saw their family members alive and well and saw Christians taking care of them? Rodney Stark said, who do you think they would turn to? They would turn to Jesus. And so these people, these Christians, as they poured out unbelievable grace on the empire, their message was that Jesus loves you, that Jesus cares about you, that Jesus wants to save you. And that grace preached to the whole world, turned the world upside down for him. Amen? The Bible says that they grew in faith and they grew in numbers. The last point I want you to see is to persevere with a mission. Let's look in verse 6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Let's stop right there. Paul has just finished his gospel work in Galatia. Okay, that region he's finished. Now he plans on going east to Asia Minor on his missionary journey. But in verse 6, God closes the door. The Holy Spirit uh, keeps them from going the most logical way to Asia Minor, Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamos, then to Laodicea. The gospel is stopped. It's not God's time. And so what does Paul do? Let's look in verse 7. So when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not let them or would not allow them to. So Paul decides to go north into Bithynia to enter in and continue this missionary journey to Asia Minor. Okay? He looks for an open door. But God again closes the door to the next logical way. The Bible says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go that way. So here's my question. Does Paul give up? Does Paul stop and say, you know what? This missionary journey's over. I mean, God just won't let us go through these doors. And so, you know, we're not going to do it. Does he get frustrated and discouraged and just call it quits? No. Look at this. As a matter of fact, Paul continues to move through this narrow corridor to the very end of the line, to the very last door. Now, why am I saying this? Well, have you ever, can we put the slide up? Um, I don't know, guys, boys do this a lot, but girls, I don't know if they do. Have you ever played with ants before? Maybe you saw an ant colony or you saw a lone ant, and uh, boys do this all the time. I've done this all the time. And you play God with the ants, Okay. So you see this ant, ants are always like, like nervous people running around, right? And so you play God and you play this malevolent God, right? And you just, you stop it from, you know, entering into wherever it wants to go. And so it hits that barrier. Do you ever notice ant doesn't stop and say, oh, I guess I can't go into my ant hill now. God's preventing me from going in. Does it ever do that? No. The ant always nervously moves to another area. 
And if you are a bad God, right, you'll, you'll stop it again. And you'll stop it again. And you'll stop it again. But as many times as you try to stop the ant, the ant keeps looking for a way, right? This is the Apostle Paul. This is what Scripture is teaching us. We need to consider the ant and be wise. As Christians, when a door closes in front of us, that doesn't mean that we stop and give up. That doesn't mean that we get frustrated and discouraged. We need to move to another door. We need to move to another way. Because God wants us to persevere in the mission of evangelism. We don't quit. We patiently, persistently try all the doors. And it wasn't until Paul and his team tried all the doors that something amazing happened. Let's look in verse 8. Can we see it? So they passed by Mycenae, went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got up ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Isn't that beautiful? God's desire the whole time was for them to go to Europe. He wanted them at this particular time in chapter 16 to go to Macedonia and Philippi and Athens. That at this time they weren't to go to Asia Minor. But God did not communicate this until all the doors were closed in evangelism. And Paul's responsibility and his team's responsibility was to try all the doors. Now why does he do this? Why does God do this? Can I share with you? I don't know. I don't know why God does what he does that way, you know? But one thing we can infer from the truth of God's word is God teaches us that our responsibility is to try all the doors. Can I get an amen? To persistently try to find a way. Because God's call for us is still the Great Commission. Maybe you try this and it doesn't work. Maybe you try that and it fails miserably. Maybe you try something else and it just doesn't work out and it doesn't produce anything. That doesn't mean that we give up. That doesn't mean that we stop in the mission of evangelism. It just means that we continue on until God gives us that vision or God gives us that uh, uh, availability. Don't give up until God opens the right doors. Keep on keeping on with the mission. You know, I believe, and I want to end with this, the whole point of this message is for us to reset, refocus, and our church's name is Renew, so renew our passion for Jesus Christ and for what he is all about. The gospel is something that we need to do. How do we do it? Well, as we go into the next few weeks uh, on Sundays talking about the city, let's not forget that our call is to reproduce reproducing Christians to have an in-them-to-win-them attitude, to preach God's grace in word and deed, and to persevere in the mission that God has called us. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to ask you, Lord, to be the Lord of our lives. Lord, uh, we know that this life is a drop in the bucket. It's a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so because of that, our home is eternity. And Lord, you've called us to be witnesses for you to a lost and dying world who needs to see eternity instead of what they see right now. And God, we pray that you would give us the passion and the desire to do it. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.